You're tuning in to an Oats for Breakfast extended interview. In this segment, you'll get to hear Patrick and Asiya continue their discussion with Tanner Merlis about the alt-right and the recent debate that took place between Steve Bannon and David Frum in Toronto. They talk about what the monk debates are, whether note platforming is a justifiable tactic, as well as about the lessons the left might want to take to heart when considering the rise of the alt-right. One thing that we didn't really hear much about with this whole monk debate kerfuffle is uh, what exactly the monk debate is. So could you maybe take us through? The, the monk debates was founded with $12 million from, from the late Peter Monk. Monk basically um, grew up in Hungary. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a member of a, quite a wealthy Hungarian Jewish family that uh, produced and distributed chocolates across the Austro-Hungarian Empire. With the rise of Hitler's Nazi regime and the occupation of Hungary in 1944, um, the Nazis decimated, uh, you know, in addition to, to, to millions of Jews, Monk's family. Um, fortunately, they were able to escape the Holocaust and basically ended up in Canada. Monk started a hotel chain, an international hotel chain, across South Pacific tourist sort of islands. Then in 1983, I believe, bought a gold mine in northern Ontario and then formed Barrick Inc., which then over the next three decades became a global mining giant that has a very shady human rights abuse record and uh, not a very positive track record with regard to you know, ecological sustainability, uh, indigenous people's sovereignty, and um, conditions for the working people mm-hmm. around the mines. And that um, was called Barrick Gold, right? Yeah, Barrick Inc., which still exists, and and it's it's one of the the Canadian states, you know, favored corporations. It's the biggest gold mining corporation in the world. That's right. That's intense. So I mean, Monk is a um, conservative. You know, he's never sort of you know mixed words about his political political allegiances, and rabid anti-socialist. I mean, in 1997, he praised the Chilean military dictator Augusto Pinochet for transforming Chile from a wealth-destroying socialist state to a capital-friendly model being copied around the world. That's a quote from Monk. Um, He compared the late uh, Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez to Hitler. Like many billionaires, Monk's enjoyed tax benefits and a boost to a controversial image by founding and donating to charities. So when Monk died in 2018, he left a massive sum of his wealth to the Peter and Melanie Monk Charitable Foundation, which has distributed almost 300 million to charities in Canada and another 41 million to Technion at the Israeli Institute of Technology. And basically, this is kind of uh, an Israeli um, research partnership between a university and Israel's military industrial complex, which was responsible for um, Iron Dome. So the major charity, and also, I mean, when you get to charities, the, the uh, Aurea Foundation is, is one of, of Monk's charities. And this is basically a charity that donates to Canada's leading right-wing neoliberal think tanks, which advocate for free market policies benefiting the rich and Canadian capital. You know, one um, of their main recipients is the Fraser Institute. Yeah, the Fraser Institute, the Montreal Economic Institute, the C.D. Howe Institute, and there's like a list of eight or ten uh, right-wing think tanks that are, you know, supported by this Monk Foundation, in addition to other corporate donors, of course. It's not like it's singularly Monk doing all of this. They also um, 
founded the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And this is for about $80 million. And this is a very prominent, you know, research institute, Canada's Ivy League University. And I'd be very surprised to find anyone doing research <laughs> that put <laughs> Canadian foreign policy in a critical light or tried to do the kind of critical political economy research that uh, we've seen being undertaken by, by people like Jerome Klassen, Greg Albo, Tyler Shipley, Todd Gordon, mm-hmm. um, and other great left political economists of Canadian foreign policy. So you're not going to see that kind of knowledge coming out of the Monk School of Global Affairs. You're going to see largely what is called administrative research, research that is essentially by and for the status quo that helps the state and um, Canadian capital achieve their strategic security interests in, in world affairs, you know? So even how this shapes academia is quite interesting. But back to the Monk debate. So, so Monk, you know, donated $12 million to the Monk debates. Um, and given Monk's class interest and conservative political leanings, it's not surprising that the Monk debates and frequently offers the public a substantive debate which I would imagine, you know, could entail a debate between someone on the right and someone actually on the left. Um, instead, what we got was a debate between two sides of the same conservative coin, you know, from versus Bannon. You are fading over the turf of like Republican conservatism. That being said, um, is there a sense in which this populism, as espoused by people like Bannon, uh, is there a sense in which it opens a new political space because he said things during the debate that were quite striking on the surface for instance he referred to the millennials as the um as serfs so of course there's an element of political marketing in that in terms of oh you're anxious you're a serf what do i do ah okay i'm gonna take bannon's solution uh but that being said uh, there is not anybody else in the media who has the kind of platform that bannon does who speaks with any kind of critical eye towards the issues facing, say, the millennial generation. In that sense, he seems to be opening at least a a different space for debate than has previously been the case. Would you agree with that? I don't agree that Bannon has opened a space for a populism that pits uh, an administrative neoliberal elite against uh, working people or millennial serfs. That space, in my estimation, was opened by Occupy Wall Street with the framing of class antagonism as the difference between the 1% and the 99%. That space was opened up by the Sanders movement. Um, That space was opened up by the hard organizing and communications work of the Democratic Socialists of America and other socialist tendencies in the United States. That space essentially was opened up by the left, but it was soon after occupied by the by the far right. And so, again, I see Bannon sort of, you know, co-opting or appropriating what is very resonant to many millions of Americans, which is this sort of understanding that there is a structural antagonism between the wealthy billionaires, the corporate elites that Bernie Sanders, Sanders regularly speaks of, and um you know, majority of working people whose lives have objectively gotten worse over the past four decades due to neoliberal structural adjustment policies. Um, should deplatforming ever be a option? A lot of people were were saying that, you know, for example, Bannon should be no platformed. Like, what's your stance on no platforming? My answer to the question sort of seems to shift depending upon how I'm thinking or feeling, you know, every week or two. It's not a, it's not, it's not a, the, the issue of, of free speech versus no speech, platforming versus no platforming is one that I'm just, I'm, I'm puzzled about. And then I continually return to and think through 
not with regard to sort of abstract ideals about some notions of like unmitigated free speech is good for a free society. I'm actually trying to assess this very contextually with regard to like the conjuncture and also the the the, the moments where this these discussions come up and, and how they apply. So I mean, I'm not calling for people to be jailed for expressing themselves, but I'm not a free speech absolutist. Um, not today anyway. So within the context of 2018, where you see the rise of the right around the world, where you see these tendencies in society, uh, where you see the increase, the drastic increase in hate crime in Canada, in the United States, and all over the world, I don't think that taking an absolute or abstract position necessarily, you know, is, is beneficial. Um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about the speech issue today. At the tactical level, does no platforming work? Well, yes and no. Richard Spencer, after being no platformed on his tour um, of American universities last year, he was basically shut down. He was demobilized. His followers were demoralized. And basically, he said, no platforming has been effective. But we have to remember is that every face-to-face no platform that is successful has in one way or another been turned into um, an opportunity for alt-right intellectuals to become successful in the online environment or in the social media environment. So let's say Richard Spencer shut down at a university campus. Richard Spencer doesn't get to speak. Well, what Richard Spencer does within one minute of not being, you know, allowed to speak or being, you know, countered at a university or college is he goes on YouTube or he goes on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So... No platforming sort of in the streets may be effective at, you know, directly countering um, this type of speech in face-to-face environments, but it does very little in the absence of, say, hate speech legislation being enforced online, which it doesn't seem to be anytime soon. So, again, I'm mixed. But, I mean, what frustrates me is that so much of the energy, I think, on the left now is sort of getting mad at liberals and other lefties for trying to no-platform fascists. There are so many more significant and powerful ways by which the speech of the left is constrained or limited that we're not getting angry enough about. So much of our energy is kind of just like, ah, you're being too sensitive. I I think the way the alt-right kind of distinguishes itself, especially online, is it's uh, amoral character. They, they, you know, will do, will create a lot of really crude art, if you want to call it, you know, do a lot of crude things. And that's something which a lot of traditional conservatives look down on and they they at least present themselves as valuing these, you know, typically moral things like family and, you know, responsibility and whatever. So why is it that, you know, the alt-right does seem to just give off this, especially online, like um, not not just like uh, transgressive, but I would say like completely amoral character. Yeah, I, I think it's a difference between means and ends. I would argue that the alt-right's uh, most effective propagandists still dream of kind of a, a white conservative ethno-state where white families, you know, bourgeois, you know, capitalist values, individualism still sort of prevail as like the good values of their good ethno-state society. But the means or the tactics that they're employing to win consent to that idea have changed. I think the people on the alt-right recognize that the appeals made by sort of, you know, moral majority evangelical Christians or old right paleoconservative culture warriors simply don't resonate with young people. So they've tried to mobilize the kind of tools and the imagery that resonates with sort of young white guys and then use that to win them to what is essentially, again, quite an old ideology and quite an old conservative ideology. So there's this... um ironic take 
on the way they they uh, portray their appearance, even an ironic look back on some of their old history, I guess, in terms of the KKK and other related movements. But what is this thing, for example, the the Pepe frog? Where does this come from? What is that? Uh, like, what is, how is this uh, uh, related to, to this movement? Yeah, there's a long and complicated history where the actual artist responsible for Pepe, you know, of no fault of their own, ended up having their creation totally appropriated and repurposed uh-huh. um, by sort of alt-right online culture warriors, um, uh, you know, to the chagrin of the original, you know, creator of that image, which I think speaks to the point you made about this kind of pastiche, the kind of ironic mode, the kind of appropriation and repurposing of cultural materials in new ways, which all kind of reflect liberal postmodern theory and artistic practice that was very much celebrated, um, at least within the, the professional liberal artistic milieus of sort of like capitalist neoliberal societies from like the late 70s forward. So the all, you know, postmodern was seen to be something that would be, again, leaning liberal or perhaps leaning left, when in fact those formal techniques can be adopted by and articulated to, to any political project, uh, left uh, or right. Do you actually think the alt-right, um, do you think they've been genuinely successful or is there a bit of hype associated with this? You know, have they really been successful or is this a sign of their weakness, really, the fact that they're all online like that? No, I, I think they have been successful. I mean, I don't really draw a distinction between politics and the age of digital media, between an online or an offline or a face-to-face or a virtual or mediated experience. I think all politics is mediatized and it always has been and ever more so um, in the age of Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, um, and, and various social media platforms. Um, so I think the, the, the alt-right sort of got the jump on the left with regard to figuring out how to effectively use these tools to, to win people, to sort of change, to set agendas, to sort of shape the way people perceive reality. And I think we're still in a very sort of responsive mode, but there have been great gains made by the left over the past, you know, five, sort of eight years or so as well. And we're seeing sort of the left continue to build up its digital media capacities and projects. Um, but every time I go on YouTube, I probably see, you know, maybe about 120,000 videos of so-and-so alt-right figure destroys social justice warrior, destroys cultural Marxists, you know, smashes politically correct liberal. And I'm saying, like, that, that for me speaks to the power of the alt-right. Why don't I go on YouTube and find 125,000 videos of democratic socialists destroys or demolishes bourgeois ideology or, you know, you know, like you know, Marxist intellectual, you know, crushes Jordan Peterson 17 times. We're not there yet. And I think we have a lot of work to do to get there. We have to get to those clickbait headlines. We're not there yet. (laughs) Former, the Right Honorable, uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper recently wrote a book called Right Here, Right Now. Incidentally, a reference to this one-hit wonder song by this band Jesus Jones. But uh, I hope his book isn't a one-hit wonder. I mean, it's an unfortunate title for the book. But he was arguing on um, global television, and he had been on uh, Fox News in the United States. And Harper had been arguing that there's basically no choice. The populist wave is here. We have to cater to the demands of these right-wing kind of rural populist types. Because if we don't, the alternative is Bernie Sanders and Marxism. And I think um, Harper in those interviews really spelled it out quite clearly what the politics are for the right here. It's about containing socialism or some kind of other 
systematically uh, critical uh, political movement. Is Harper just peddling a one-hit wonder? Or, uh, yeah, is, I mean, I, think, I think, you, really, think you have uh, against center-right people like David Frum trying to, again, you know, protect and promote the de- delegitimized, you know, neoliberal consensus, uh, you know, of the past four decades. And then you have actually far-right conservatives saying that we just need to now mobilize the populist rhetoric of the left to dissuade people from joining the left and keep people sort of on our side, you know? What I don't understand about the critique of populism on the left is that arguably Marx, at the level of political rhetoric, was a populist. Marx, you know, populism essentially pits an elite versus a people. The, the constitutive elements of the elite and the people is undecided. It's something that you fill based upon your, 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 your philosophy, your politics, and your understanding of power and privilege and influence in society. Marx basically puts a populist argument forward. There is the bourgeoisie the ruling class, and then there is the proletariat and the working class. There's a structural antagonism between these two forces, and the conflicts between these two forces basically lead to historic change. Not in some sort of mechanical way, of course, political organizing is necessary, but why don't we see Marx as also a populist, someone who has a clear idea of the elite and someone who also has a sense of who the people are? Do you think that the alt-right will have a material effect in, you know, actually changing the conditions of either who they're campaigning for or against or what have you? The alt-right has been effective and I think changing what is permissible at the level at least of rhetoric, ideas, ways of thinking about and behaving um, in society, at least as compared to the neoliberal consensus of the past three or four decades. I mean, the fact that so many people in the United States now believe that George Soros controls every liberal movement and left initiative in the United States suggests that the alt-right has had power at the level of shaping how people perceive the reality of which they're a part. There's this crazy, of course, George Soros conspiracy theory. George Soros, it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy through and through. It's a global conspiracy. But George Soros, the billionaire, the liberal, you know, basically is, is the mastermind behind all of the social movements in the United States right now, you know, from Black Lives Matter to people in support of Colin Kaepernick, I know, to um, even Occupy Wall Street was associated with George Soros money. The cultural Marxist conspiracy theory that I've studied, you know, for, for a while now, I mean, just seemed absurd and ludicrous, not even worthy of paying attention to, you know, 10 10, you know, 12 years ago or so. But now you have like cultural Marxist conspiracy theory, which is again, like a blatantly anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, you know, being circulated far and wide. So I think the alt-right has had some significant effects, you know, in, in, in shifting um, the public perception of politics and the way the world works. And it's like this skewed, you know, attempt to sort of rewrite C-right mills for the alt-right. Like the alt-right, you know, buys into like a power elite theory it's just that it's never like a capitalist power elite theory. It's always like, you know, some anti-Semitic power elite theory or some like liberal multicultural power elite theory. You know, they never take on, you know, basically the logics of capital. Um, they don't really have any understanding of the ways by which essentially companies, regardless of them being, you know, Muslim or Christian or Jewish in terms of their owners, basically will pursue the same kind of profit imperative within the structural constraints of a capitalist system. There's just no sufficient materialist analysis offered by the alt-right. You just have basically a theory of like there's some powerful elites that are basically behind the scenes acting upon all of us in, in really harmful ways. 
and we need to vote for someone like Trump or get on board with Bannon. Like, does the left need to take away the lesson from the alt-right? I mean, I think the left sort of grew kind of comfortable and just denouncing or shouting down or closing down speech uh, that it disagreed with, um, as opposed to formulating better arguments um, and better ways of convincing or persuading people that the left side is more virtuous and better and related to a good society than that which is being offered by the right. So it kind of becomes kind of a convenient way to short circuit the hard work of learning public debating skills, crafting effective arguments, and essentially learning how to persuade people that aren't in your kind of, you know, socialist theoretical echo chamber or your, you know, you know weathered left intellectual culture um, to buy into what you're offering them. 